You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review on this gloomy Thursday. And let me tell you, folks, it is gloomy on this Thursday, May the 9th. And uh, I don't know what it is about the weather. It really does affect someone's mood. I was in a, such a good mood this week. And then it's just been so rainy here. And it's gotten me down. I guess for those of you who live in real rainy parts of the country, I guess maybe you're always uh, always depressed. But who knows? Um, we've certainly had tons of rain here in Maryland. We've had record rain the last uh, year or so. But, uh, you know, it's funny. If you think about it. I just saw from this weather geek, Chris Martz, on Twitter, around this time in 1895, 75% of the U.S. was above 80 degrees with 90-degree temps in Minnesota, Maine, and the Midwest. 100-degree temps were were, uh, recorded in Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, 110 degrees in Arizona. But today, it's snowing three to six inches in Minnesota. And we're only 22 days from June. You know, and even here in the warm, humid mid-Atlantic, it's been a cool, rainy spring. It really has. And it just goes to show that you can't control God's thermostat. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. It's been doing this for a while. We've had record heat well over 100 years ago. We have record cool now, and we have the opposite. We set record for hot temperatures some days in some parts of the country, set records for cold, just like we've always been doing. I didn't mean to get into this, but you know, it reminds me, I forgot to mention my stack of, um, you know, quick hits that the Republicans just appointed in the special climate change panel a global warming guy. Where is this? This is from Bloomberg. This is last week. A former White House environmental advisor who fought to keep the U.S. in a global pact to slash greenhouse gas emissions is joining the, the Republican staff of a House Climate Change Committee, one of two appointments signaling the party's shift in strategy on the issue. George David Banks, the former advisor to President Donald Trump, will serve as a chief strategist for Republicans handling policy and communications on the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. And the committee's new Republican staff director will be Marty Hall, a one-time environmental aide to former to former President George W. Bush, who now works for Clear Path Foundation, a conservative group that advocates for clean energy. Yeah, just like the conservative groups that advocate for criminal justice reform and for comprehensive immigration reform. See, this is the problem. I I don't mind Republicans engaging. You know, I guess theoretically they could boycott the committee. Democrats are creating this special subcommittee on climate change. 
Now, one thing, if I were Republicans and all the documents, I would put global warming committee just to make fun out of them and call them out on their lie and their change of language. But, um, you know, so you could totally boycott, but I, I fully understand engaging them. But what you do is you go, you don't go half-baked. You get your full, you come in full force. You get a guy that fully articulates the opposing view. That's what the left does. In each issue, they get their most virulent proponent of whatever that is, whether it's global warming, whether it's open borders, whether it's socialized healthcare. They will get their guys who are most accomplished on their issue in the various portfolio of issues, whether it's a committee chairman, whether it's a staffer on our side, we'll take the most liberal Republican member or staffer on a given issue and put them in charge of that issue. So that's just where we are now. This guy banks. He, uh, has a history of treading middle ground on the climate, including during his tenure on the National Economic Council, serving as a special assistant to the president for international energy and environmental policy issues. So a guy who should have never been in the White House to begin with, thank God Trump didn't listen to him and pulled out of the Paris Accord. But then Republicans go pick him up. And maybe that's a good segue into our general discussion today of half-baked measures and lukewarm hell. If you notice, I've been teetering the last number of days, even weeks, on how to address this administration. On, On the one hand, they seem to be saying some good things. Okay? Um, You know whether it's on the courts, which we're going to get to in a minute, or whether it's on immigration. But then on the other hand, they do other things that just totally undermine it. And often, there are times in life where increment, where half-baked measures serve as a forward-looking approach towards incremental victory. But but then there's issues where you're dealing with a certain flashpoint. It's an all or nothing. You either agree to the premise or you don't. And once you agree to the premise halfway, the half that you try to do good is actually forced to run up against the headwinds that you created by giving a consensus view to the foundational premise of the other side on that issue. But if I agree to anthropogenic global warming, if I agree to government-run healthcare, if I agree to, oh, uh, we, need, we need to give asylum to Central Americans, humanitarian. So, but albeit, I don't want to do what you want to do. I want to do slightly different on one, two, and three. Now you're going to run up against the headwinds that you helped generate. And that's part of the problem here. Whereas sometimes when you have stuff in the news that, allows you to use tailwinds to push back against their entire premise, that is the time to strike while the iron's hot. And you know what? Go for the glory. Go all the way. There's no such thing as lukewarm hell 
in politics. So we're going to discuss this through the prism of the two foundational issues that we're dealing with. The courts and immigration, the two are intimately connected. Picking up from some of our discussion, what was it, uh, Tuesday, yesterday we had a terrific show with Colonel Steiner, amazing in intel briefing on what's going on. I will, he, he could do that every day of the week. So if you want him on again, we'll, we'll certainly have him on to discuss China, other issues. He could be, pretty much speak about anything foreign policy, national security related. But on Tuesday, we did a show on on the courts again, just understanding how things are got this bad, why they continue to be bad, why all these false idols of somehow we're going to win this game are not true. I want to I want to continue that in the in the prism of half-baked measures. So I'm not much of a movie watcher, but you know, I know this famous episode from Breaking Bad in season three where this character, I forgot who played him, Mike Ehrmantraut, he was a corrupt Philly beat cop turned, you know, like kind of criminal drug runner, which is pretty apropos for the discussion today because um, all of this is leading to the empowerment of the cartels. But anyway, this was a guy that um, you know used to be a cop, and he, he was talking about a lesson he learned that there was this really big, violent domestic abuser, and he talked about how he he decided to let the guy sleep it off in the drunk tank instead of shooting him in the head. Well, the very next day, the abuser killed his girlfriend with a blender. So he said, moral of the story is, I choose a half measure when I should have gone all the way. Or I chose a half measure when I should have gone all the way. I'll never make that mistake again. No more half measures, Walter. No more half measures, President Trump. Part of the problem that we're seeing on a lot of policies and I know sometimes we need to be patient. But well over two years, going on two and a half years into this administration, it's been so frustrating that, you know, it started out, you had all these clowns. I mean, just yesterday, um, McMaster, remember him? He was National Security Council head, said something outlandish about the need to be in Afghanistan forever. I mean, can you imagine we had Tillerson and, and, and McMaster running our foreign policy? Now, on the one hand, you'd say, well, look, you know, we've improved, but look how hard we had to fight just to neutralize just part of the enemy within in this administration. And I don't just mean the deep state, I mean the shallow state, people this president appointed. We've been proven right on every policy and, and personnel question. We really have the last two and a half years. And in a way, that's good because, you know, it does show progress that slowly but surely we're proven right and Trump gets rid of them or changes course. But I guess what's so frustrating is that, you know, when is the time we're going to go for the glory? You're not going to get power forever. And when the situation warrants a four, we're always at a two. When it warrants a six, we're at a four. When it warrants an eight, we're at a six. 
Now, sometimes that works, but sometimes it actually works against you. So, the first thing I want to bring up is a lot of you have reached out to me to mention your excitement over Vice President Mike Pence's speech at the Federalist Society saying that they're going to challenge nation the concept of nationwide injunctions. And wow, this is great. They finally got the message. And there's no doubt that I think, you know, again, first the positive, because it is positive. I really do think, I really do think that, um, you know, we're at a point where our work is helping. I do think the administration is very responsive, which again is why, to me, the biggest thing we're lacking is a conservative movement because the president is very responsive to conservative demands. The problem is there are so few conservatives around and even fewer making demands. So, well, he's as responsive as you'll demand. But you see where we've kind of upped the ante and he realizes he's trapped, he starts to react. But even while he does it, and this is in this case is Mike Pence, it's half-baked. Let, let me first read the part of the speech and then um, just dissect what I agree with, what I don't agree with, and where, where this is headed. Unfortunately, as you've no doubt reflected on today, the kind of government control that our founders were concerned about is too often exerted by the administrative state in this country. And it's been emerging in recent years in the federal judiciary in the form of nationwide injunctions. Now, first of all, I would note that it's not emerging with this. It's been emerging for a long time. It's almost like the administrative state was the main problem. And now, increasingly, it's federal judiciary. Actually, it was the federal judiciary for as long as it was an administrative state. The nationwide injunctions is kind of the newest element of it. But anyway, that's maybe nitpicking. These orders are issued by federal district court judges on a broad range of issues from national security to immigration, from border security to health care reform. And these orders prevent the entire executive branch from enforcing a statute or regulation or a policy on a nationwide basis. And they apply everywhere to everyone, granting relief even to those who are not parties to a case. As Justice Thomas wrote last year in a decision upholding President Trump's ability to enforce our immigration laws against nationwide injunctions, Justice Thomas said nationwide injunctions, in his words, quote, take a toll on the federal court system, preventing legal questions from percolating and encouraging forum shopping and making every case a national emergency for the courts and the executive branch. It's remarkable to think a Supreme Court justice has to convince four of their colleagues to uphold a nationwide injunction, but a single district court judge can issue one effectively preventing the duly elected president of the United States from nullifying, from fulfilling what he believes is a constitutional duty. This obstruction at the district level is unprecedented. Studies show that there's not a single example of a nationwide injunction in the first 175 years of our nation's history. Although we received some good news last night that the Ninth Circuit stayed an injunction to allow our administration to continue our Remain in Mexico policy, addressing the crisis at our southern border, by the way, I'll get to that case in a minute, the truth is our administration has been unfairly hit with more nationwide injunctions than the first 40 American presidents combined. Nationwide injunctions issued by federal judges prevent the executive branch from acting, compromising our, our national security by obstructing the lawful ability of the president to stop threats to the homeland where he sees them. These injunctions undermine the rule of law and the separation of powers that are essential to our nation's founding that lie at the very heart of our Constitution. Um, 
And so I say to all those gathered here, for the sake of our liberty, our security, our prosperity, and the separation of powers, this era of judicial activism must come to an end. Everyone clapped. Now, this would have been awesome, despite the fact that there's a couple of words I want to nitpick here. But I'm only nitpicking based on how he closed the loop on this. Retroactively kind of sheds light on some of the erroneous, and I don't blame him because He's not exactly the most learned on these issues. Um, you know, people who supposedly are don't get this, so certainly he doesn't. But um, what he should have said is the era of judicial supremacism is over. Not judicial activism. It's kind of a meaningless term. I want to explain why in a minute. And therefore, he made the case. He should have said, for 200 years, their own case law says... Immigration is left to the political branches. It's national security, like we just said. It's foreign policy. In many cases, statute says they have no jurisdiction. We will follow the law. They don't have the power over visas. They don't have the power over, um, gosh, issuing <laughs> issuing um, uh, press badges to Jim Acosta. That's where they need to take it. Meaning, if you're saying that it's illegal, then it's illegal. If you're saying that these, it, it, it's a violation of separation of powers, it's a violation of separation of powers. Instead, he says, the Supreme Court of the United States must clarify that district judges can decide no more than the cases before them. And it's imperative that we restore the historic tradition that district judges do not set policy for the whole nation. In the days ahead, our administration will seek opportunities to put this very question before the Supreme Court to ensure that decisions affecting every American are made either by those elected to represent the American people or by the highest court in the land. So, look, I understand why politically you're going to go after the lower courts, not the Supreme Court. And, and look, I have myself, I have myself called on them to do that. But it, the rub is that I didn't say they should beg the Supreme Court to decide that. They on their own should say what's patently obvious that it's unconstitutional and done. By sub we're going to submit that question to the Supreme Court. I now, I don't know which case and what their strategy is, what particular strategy. Let's assume there is one and there is a particular case they're going to do, do this with. Um... I mean, I do know in the Seventh Circuit, one of the sanctuary city cases, there was an issue with a nationwide injunction and by the district judge and the Seventh Circuit judge judges actually said it will only apply to Chicago. So I don't know if the other side is appealing that aspect to the Supreme Court or not, because it would actually the ball would be in, in the plaintiff's court in that case. I'm not sure which case he means, but uh, th th that's fine. But again, like, really? So you're going to beg the Supreme Court? Well, I mean, you had two and a half years for that, if, if that's your strategy anyway. So now when it warrants an eight, you're at a, you're at a four. You're going to go the Supreme Court route. Mind you, you cannot force them to take up a case. And mind you, there really is no guarantee they're going to do anything. And, and here's the thing. Once you submit yourself to the Supreme Court, as he did, what are you going to do if you lose? Okay? You just created a precedent that it's either the elected people or the highest court in the land. 
what Mike Pence, maybe he does understand, I don't know. There's nothing different about the Supreme Court than the lower courts. You understand that. Vis-a-vis separation of powers from the vantage point of the executive branch of government, it doesn't matter. It's just kind of more egregious and obnoxious if it's coming from a lower court. But in terms of their opinion binding as law, that you cannot have any political rule that other than that, it's the same thing. Other than the fact that, you know, the Supreme Court hears appeals of the lower courts. They're supreme to the lower courts. And other than the fact that the Supreme Court, by definition, because it's national, has jurisdiction nationally. But therein lies the rub. Mike Pence is missing a very subtle but important point that and he's kind of misrepresenting Clarence Thomas, or at least underselling what he said. And if you understand that, it's not just a technical point. It speaks directly to the philosophy that he doesn't understand, or he partially addressed, but then contradicts himself. And that is this. The problem is not nationwide injunctions. Clarence Thomas said this blatantly. The problem is universal injunctions. It's just that that problem is brought out very evidently to the layman to understand the absurdity of it by taking a look at nationwide injunctions. Let me unpack that. Okay? So, you know, Juan Jose Gomez somehow gets standing in court, which he should never get standing for, and that's a whole other issue, and says, all right, I want my credible fear claim uh, ratified, confirmed, approved. And he goes to the U.S. court for the Southern District of California. So the Southern District of California issues an edict Everyone must be approved, struck down what, what the Trump administration is doing. The problem with that ruling is not just that he issued it nationwide outside of the Southern District of California. That is, that is true. That is a problem. That's clear they shouldn't have jurisdiction. I agree. But it's more than that. It's more foundational. It's a ruling of granting relief to that plaintiff. It's not universally binding on other plaintiffs anywhere in that district or outside that district. Because judges don't issue edicts, laws, or vetoes. They grant judgment within the judicial branch of government relief to a plaintiff. But two things. That judgment is not universally binding on non-plaintiffs, and it's not self-executing on the other branches of government. In other words, it's only within their branch of government, and it's only when you're granting relief. So if I, I use this example all the time. Is it a positive or a negative? If you're seeking a negative, look, I'm an American. Government is trying to fine or imprison me well, ultimately, where do you go to throw someone in jail and convict them? You go to a court. So a court, that's their domain. And they could say, look, 
You, I'm granting you relief. I'm staying your execution. Um, you know, you, you don't you don't have to listen to this. You don't have to pay the fine. Right? Because that that's what they can do. So if any now, it's only on that plaintiff, but you know, the presumption is if other plaintiffs come, they'll, they'll apply precedent and they'll, you know, they're they're gonna refuse to convict convict people like that. But in terms of positive actions, I want relief in the sense that I want 30 days of early voting. I want visas. I want asylum status. I want a work permit. (laughs) The courts don't issue that. That's an executive branch function. So their ruling saying it's unconstitutional what the government is doing. You should get asylum struck down. That's not self-executing on the other branches of government. And if they believe that is wrong, and if they know it's wrong, they have an obligation to follow what the real law says. Just like the courts have an obligation to follow the the real law if they believe the other branches get it wrong. As we said, Marbury versus Madison is understood properly. Judicial review is a repudiation of judicial supremacism. By definition, certainly you have to have executive and legislative review for their powers. That's the broader issue here. It's just the nationwide injunction thing brought out. It's a little bit complicated, the point I'm making. It's a little bit, you know, in the weeds if you're not familiar with with law and the Constitution, the structure of the courts, and the three branches of government. So it's a lot easier for people just to understand the absurdity of a district judge issuing a ruling outside of their, their district or the Ninth Circuit outside of the Western states. And that's certainly true, but it's more than that. Why is this important? Because let's say we go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's like, okay, everyone gets to come into the country and get visas. Let's say they would say that. So it is true that they do have nationwide jurisdiction, so you don't have that point. But it's the same problem as a district judge that they cannot issue universal injunctions. It's only on that plaintiff. Now, you could have other plaintiffs come before them eventually, but for that moment, it's not struck down. And it also, it's only for their branch of government. This is the moral hazard that they don't understand. This is what, this is what our guys like. I'm, I'm okay if we make them feel comfortable with the notion of going after lower courts. If, if, if the way to break them in to going after the judiciary is like somehow se- severing out the lower courts. But intellectually, it's the same thing. What Clarence Thomas's point was is that courts don't rule on issues. They don't strike down legislation or policies or executive actions. They grant a judgment to a plaintiff. So once you understand that, it doesn't matter if it's nationwide in scope or district-wide, other than that's an extra layer of egregiousness from the district judges. But the Supreme Court is bound by the same constraint. They don't strike. It's not like, okay, you know what? The lower courts, you can't strike stuff down, but the Supreme Court, no, 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 no. Like like, like uh, Penn said, you know, we're going to be, you know, we have to have the democratically elected people or the highest court in the land. No, the highest court in the land doesn't decide political issues any more than a lower court does. Okay? It's just that, that that's, it's just that their jurisdiction is nationwide in scope. But at the end of the day, they're giving judgment. 
That's why Clarence Thomas said, I don't like the term. He actually said he doesn't like the term nationwide injunction. The more accurate issue here at hand is universal injunctions. Meaning because the former would connote the fact that, well, yeah, judges have veto power. It's like, you know, they stand on top of the food chain. Congress passes, the president, you know, uh, signs and the courts ratify or veto in a council of revision. Albeit, if you're a district judge, you only veto in your district, circuit judge in your circuit, and the Supreme Court nationwide. No, nobody vetoes nothing. Okay, that's not the role of the court. And it's high time that we finally educated people on that. Because you're not going to win on this. It's too mealy-mouthed. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. Roberts and, and, and Kavanaugh, these dudes, the judicial supremacists, we're not going to get a ruling like Thomas. They're not going to, even if they take it up, we're not going to win that. They're going to do some sort of half-baked thing. Like, well, in these situations, a universal injunction is not appropriate. But in these cases where it could affect everyone and it's not feasible to only apply it, in these cases it is. And that's going to create a whole 100 years of litigation on where the gray area is with that. And so basically, you know, lower courts are going to be able to assert it should apply everywhere because this is a case where the Supreme Court said it would be, you know, nationwide in scope like they do on every other issue. When you posit mealy-mouthed arguments, you're going to get mealy-mouthed results. When you pursue half-baked measures, you're going to get half-baked results. Sometimes the easier thing is to just say, once and for all, we either have three branches of government that get to interpret the Constitution relevant to their powers, or we have one branch. I mean, I think that you have to present that to the people. That's just my critique of it. I'm happy he addressed it, but that's the issue here. And that's why it's not an issue of judicial activism. The problem conservatives have had with this issue for too long is that they've acceded to the point that courts are vetoes. That every policy or law, state or federal, goes to a court irrespective of the standing, irrespective of the nature of the issue, and it gets ruled upon. Albeit, you're an activist because you're not interpreting the Constitution the way I want it. Now, they're right. They're right. But the, the problem with that argument is that because we all disagree on what the Constitution means nowadays, even on the most basic sense, unfortunately, so you say, like, we need judges who are going to interpret the Constitution. So the left's like, yeah, exactly. So that's what we're doing. We need to militate against the entire notion that they are the sole and final expositor of the Constitution. Sure, if uh, the political branches violate real rights, I would like for the courts to declare that to be unconstitutional. But the reality is, it's not self-executing. We shouldn't follow the law because the law is unconstitutional, not because a court said it's unconstitutional, because it is unconstitutional. But who determines that? It's really all three branches and the entire body politic and the people together. You have to fight about that. I'm sorry. That's just how it is. Otherwise, it's North Korea, judicial North Korea. We, 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 we got to stop putting our faith into these half-baked measures. Let me, let me continue along those lines. A couple more issues with the courts. So you might have seen, and um, Pence uh, 
referenced it. The Ninth Circuit, everyone was shocked that, oh my gosh, we finally got a ruling from the Ninth Circuit. Could you believe it? I mean, the Ninth Circuit finally, um, you know, didn't take a swing at the Trump administration and they overturned a lower court on, this is a district judge. They overturned the district judge that, that, that blocked their return to Mexico policy, which really they only applied to literally, you know, a half a percent of a half a percent of the aliens coming here. Now, hopefully they'll expand it, but, you know, for now it was a few hundred people. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, we won in the Ninth Circuit. That's great. So my first reaction when I saw it without reading the opinion was, look, this is an example of what I was saying that the administration was like getting a little bit more aggressive and they see that they're cornered in the border, that the the results of what their circuit has done They have no other choice. It spawns such a crisis that I think they're scared that this possibly might be the one issue where the government will have no choice but to follow the law and not their edicts. And then, as I've always said, once you do it one time, they lose all their power. One time you stand up to that barking dog, it's over. Because as everyone will see, they don't have this veto power. It's not a veto. They render a judgment in a case. But if that requires the other branches to give it effect, as Alexander Hamilton said, and they know it's wrong, they should push back. And I and I was I was, you know, getting the impression that the courts were fearful that maybe the other branches were were about to get to that point. So they're like they're backing off because they don't want to lose that. We think that they hold all the cards, but ultimately it's not true. Is a uh, Eleventh Circuit judge um, William Pryor always says that judges have nothing but the the I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know the exact words. I don't have the quote in front of me, but just the the strength and veracity of their own written opinions. How convincing it is! Everyone's like, "Wow, yeah, that that's a good opinion." You know what? That in that case, he's right. That exposition of the law of the Constitution, and therefore. In our other branches of government, we're gonna we're gonna treat the law or the constitution like that. But where they know it's wrong, no, we're not. That's what I thought. But when I read it, and again, I don't mean to pour cold water. Everyone's like, "Oh, we finally won a case, even with the Ninth Circuit," but not really. It was it was complicated. There's three judges, and it's really only. So they got lucky that the guy who wrote the opinion, and I don't know why they chose him to write it and allowed him to write it the way he did, but O'Scanlan, he's now a senior judge, so he's partially retired anyway, but he is he's he's one of the few conservatives on the Ninth Circuit, meaning most of the Republican appointees are are horrible. Total Democrats, total total leftists. So you had him, and then there were two um uh, other guys, Democrat appointees, Fletcher and, and Watford, a, a Clinton appointee and an Obama appointee. And it was basically three different opinions. It wasn't three to nothing. They all agreed that a full injunction at this point on the policy is unwarranted. Okay? That's all they agreed for now to temporarily take that off. 
Now you say, well, Daniel, the fact that they even on temporary, maybe on a, the permanently on the merits, we're going to win because usually they, you know, they never miss an opportunity to put a temporary injunction on. So it doesn't seem like they they believe the administration is right. Not true. It's only the guy who wrote the opinion of Scanlon. But if you look at the concurrence and one of them strongly disagreed, they just concurred because they said, like, at this point, there's no harm being done. But but they made very clear two things. Number one, that um, ultimately, uh, this was just like on, on the merits, but on the APA, meaning that they didn't have an administrative procedure um, act APA announcement properly, that it wasn't properly done. That um, no, the, the plaintiffs are likely to succeed. So you have two out of the three saying, basically saying they're going to enjoin it on, on the next round on the APA grounds. That they didn't wait the right the, the proper ninety days. Now, by the way, as you well know, it's it's total nonsense. You don't need an APA for something like this. Okay, first of all, it's foreign policy anyway. Now, O'Scanlan seemed to recognize that foreign policy, sensitive diplomatic negotiations with Mexico. He was very clear. But oh, again, what I'm telling you is O'Scanlan is an anomaly on the three-judge panel and really an anomaly in the entire circuit if it ever went in bonk to the entire circuit. There's very few like him. So they happen to get like pretty much the best guy in the entire thing. I don't know. Again, I don't know why they allowed him to write it and they signed on the per curiam opinion, but then they almost, their concurrences, the other two concurrences are almost like dissents. So two of them are very clear that on APA grounds, they're going to go after it. Okay? So that's that's what that. Um, but then they also note that they believe it violates international law and in returning people to countries because there's a credible fear of being returned to Mexico now. And they claim that the government is not asking them. So that's going to be the next round. They're going to force the government to ask the people on their way out, do you fear being returned to Mexico? And they're all going to say yes, because they want to come here. So that's the scandal here. Unless I'm misreading something, I see on every other aspect of this case that's going to continue a two-to-one opinion the other way. So... Just, in, just realize this is very temporary. They agreed to go along, given what was litigated so far, to, to allow the policy to be implemented. But the other two were very strong. Um, in fact, one of them, where is this, started the concurrence by saying, I strongly disagree with my colleagues. And he was doing it based on international law grounds. So, so there's that. And again, part of the problem is the administration didn't go the categorical route. They didn't go the categorical route in litigation, and they didn't go the categorical route in their immigration strategy. They're all going in the weeds that within the uh, credible fear statutes, they have the right to do this. And I, and I believe they're right. But there's a more categorical approach. 1182F, 
They didn't assert it. It's never discussed in this opinion. They're not even asserting it. Just say a shutoff. And and John Roberts himself said you could, and, and the sale case in 93, implicit in being able to shut off all migration at the border is you could regulate how it comes in. So, you know, I certainly could say, you know, if, if I could say that no, no one could come in, I could certainly say you could come in, but after coming to a point of entry, or if you were, you're caught in between, you know, you got to wait in Mexico. That's a condition pending, pending adjudication. So they don't assert that. I mean, this is my problem. They're getting a little better. They're building small tent cities, deputizing 10 border agents so far to be more aggressive, to turn down credible fear. Some other things. But that would have worked a while, a year ago when we were warning about this, before the massive flood, to stem it, maybe deter it. But now that it's like this, you got to have a shutoff, logistically and message-wise. And again, doing that, you're going to have a stronger case because they would have to straight up say, two Supreme Court cases don't apply and just like the most unambiguous language. This gets very complicated deep in the weeds in immigration law, this case. That's the problem. Just the half measures, both in arguing in front of the courts, both in arguing the court's power, and also on immigration. It's just, just, now's the time to go full bore. You won the Mueller stuff. Expend your capital. Democrats are going to get crushed on this issue. Go all out. I mean, that 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 that's the thing with um with the border right now. Right now, Drudge put up my article today. Very thankful for that. Um, really happy that he's honing in on our work and hopefully we'll get get places. But as you well know, the new numbers came out for April. And as we predicted, it was another record, 109,144 apprehended at the border. It's about, what is it, like 7,000 more than, or six, 7,000 more than in March. We set another record, 58,474 family unit individuals. Noticeably, 31,606 single adults. That's that's creeping up, as we warned. And it's just like, my, my concern is, when you don't go categorical, I mentioned this at the end of yesterday's show with Israel. You're moving that Overton window. You're acculturating and you're acclimating the people to the new normal. It's like we expected. Oh, it was only a few thousand more than last month. Maybe next month it might go down slightly. Just simply just that's how statistics are. You know, it's like this is insane. It can't get more and it gets more and it gets more. It gets more five times. And then you could have a six time where it goes back like one notch. Like, oh, it went back. But really, it's just like it's 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 an oscillation. It's not a permanent trajectory back. And if anything, oh wow, it's we get a reprieve. That that's my concern headed for. 
Trump had an opportunity in February, the convergence of the of the government shutdown, harnessing the public debate with right at the time. Boom, you had the um, really the emergency blew open with all those press conferences from DHS on the February numbers. That's when he should have done it. He could still do it today when the numbers came out, he should have harnessed it. He's nowhere to be seen. So you lose that opportunity, that outrage. He could give a speech. You know, I parsed the numbers. We did this a little bit earlier in the week, but Drudge has this up. You know what I did? I counted the last 19 months because the crisis really started last year. Over the last 19 months, 301,900 Guatemalans were were apprehended. Do you understand that is 1.7% of Guatemala's population came to our border? 1.7% in 19 months. Do you know that that is on top of the 815,000 Guatemalans who already live here? Okay? 224,000 Hondurans came over the last 19 months. It's a smaller country. So that's 2.4%. 2.4% of Honduras's population came. That's population transfer. That's on top of the 623,000 already here. That means that roughly 9.2% of Honduras's population is in America. Now, you know what's interesting? We've noted before, El Salvador's numbers have been down the last year and a half or so. Only 79,000 have come from El Salvador over the past 19 months. But you know what I was thinking? You know what might the reason might be? Because in the previous years where we had Central Americans, it was mainly from El Salvador. So guess what? As of last year, we already had 1.4 million Salvadorans in this country. El Salvador is a smaller country. Do you understand? That is 22% of their population is in America. So my theory is at some point you just kind of, you know, again, it's kind of like someone who needs to lose 100 pounds. There's more to lose, so they lose more. If you only need to lose five, you know, seven, 10 pounds, you know, every week, you're only going to lose maybe a half a pound. There's not enough people to have a consistent massive flow anymore because they already came. Whereas now they're coming more from Guatemala and Honduras. But instead, we're like, okay, this statute for these people will apply this much. We'll appeal this court ruling. You lose the moral high ground and you lose the sense of urgency when you agree because you're basically saying it's not so crazy. It could be litigated. It could be taking care of the half measures. So then you're just going to get hit on the half measures anyway. By the way, I have hard numbers. We were wondering how many people have been released since just since December 21st. And I know this was happening before then. That's since when they were tracking it. ICE released 168,000. But now we know I was wondering how many were released by Border Patrol. 33,000 have been released by CBP just since March 19th. So really just six weeks worth. So we have confirmed 200,000 releases. Do you understand, if these people wind up staying here and aren't deported, that alone, just a couple months worth of, of catch and release, their lifetime cost at a very modest estimate using the um, methodology we use from Steve, Stephen Camerata of the Center for Immigration Studies would be $30 billion. 
and, and, and this gets to the point that I just don't understand. The philosophical problem with this, which I re- really think Trump needs to address directly in a speech. We all know what the law says. The law requires that, um, first of all, everyone be det- detained, shall be detained, including those that even pass a credible fear pending the full you know, granting of asylum. They shall be detained. Certainly those that haven't asserted it and or have been denied it you know, shall be detained. Everyone is uh, pursuant to law should be put into expedited removal. And even those that assert a credible fear based on the criterion set out in law, what is asylum, they should all be turned down based on the law. And they get one appeal, which by law shall be within 24 hours and no less than seven days. So really, there should be airlifts right away out of here within hours. And the most for anyone is seven days. And no matter what, everyone shall be detained. That is the law. Now, what they'll tell you is that, well, what's happened is there's so many people, and particularly family units, that they flooded us so much in a self-fulfilling prophecy in a death spiral that it has caused us to to just logistically, we have to, even without the Flores consideration in the courts, we have to let them go because we, we, we don't have space to hold them. So maybe I've said this before, but I want to make the point a little clearer. So we have the base law that we're supposed to follow. We have a situation that's unideal, and we can't follow that. So what do we do? What bothers me is that we err on the side of, so therefore we're going to release them. Therefore, we're going to reward the illegal immigrants, the smugglers, and the cartels with the very intent, of the outcome of their very intent. We're going to reward them. You know what? Normally, when you come in smaller numbers, we're going to hold you, but because you were so ingenious in creating this conveyor belt to flood us, we're going to reward the cartels and give them the catch and release to further exacerbate and and facilitate this criminal conspiracy. And we're going to saddle the American people with the drugs, the gangs, the empowerment of the cartels taking over New Mexico. Unbelievable. I want to get to that tomorrow. I'm going to have an article that, you know, maybe we'll have a guest on the health concerns. Now we know 33,000 were released by CBP. So even if we assume the 168,000 released by ICE went through some sort of health screening, which I, I'm pretty sure in most cases is not adequate. But incontrovertibly, the 33,000 are a threat. By the way, guess what? Mexican media is reporting, and, and Drudge has this up from a local Fox affiliate. I got intel yesterday from a Spanish language thing, but I couldn't confirm it. So it looks like this local Fox affiliate got it. Um, so Drudge put it up, so I didn't put out an article on it. Several hundred detained in Mexico for measles and chicken box. Measles, okay? So the, there you go. Why should the American people be on the hook for it? We don't have enough detention space. Fine. So therefore what? We release them. No. Why should the desires of the criminals 
have to trump the lawful and philosophical demands of the American people rooted in the social compact. The flip side is, so you're not let in. So you're inadmissible. You will be returned, will push you back immediately. We will not process you. A mixture of airlifts, turnbacks to Mexico, and holding in whatever detention. Well, the detention facilities aren't feasible. So what? So what? You don't have an entitlement to feed. That's not our problem. The fact that you flood us with an insidious invasion, so we have to eat it? Why should the American people be on the hook? So don't come. This would be if we didn't have an explicit statute, 1182F, saying the president could shut it off anytime. Just based, even if we didn't have that, an inherent article, two powers. If you have a certain law that they're supposed to be sent out no later than seven days, they're supposed to be detained, but they come in such great numbers invading us that it's not feasible to detain them. So you're not following the law anyway. So what do you do? What's more within the intent of law? To be stricter on the aliens or stricter on the American people? This is what is philosophically wrong with this entire approach. Now, part of the problem here is that the aliens have TV cameras in front of them. Their sympathy, their desires are very immediate and apparent. But the liabilities of the public charge, of the gangs, of the cartels, the crime, the diseases, that's either long-term, less apparent, or they completely go unreported. All these people killed by um, you know, drunk driving incidents. You know, I was thinking, this guy Juan Leon Gomez, an illegal alien from Guatemala, you might have seen in Stark County, Ohio, he was um, charged with raping and impregnating an 11-year-old girl and keeping her locked up in a closet. No one, you, you didn't see that at the border. It's in the interior, but it's never traced back to the border. Now, no one reported it was an illegal. Like always, I put an inquiry to ICE and they confirmed it was an illegal alien from Guatemala. The local media there and national media now, they're outraged that the new heartbeat bill in, in um, Ohio will prevent this girl from getting an abortion. So rather, it's like the idiot who looks at someone pointing to the moon and focuses on the finger instead of the moon. Rather than looking at the cause of this, the fact that we have foreign invaders and a hell of a lot of trash. I mean, think about it. If you have 22% of the population of El Salvador in your country, they're not all gang members, but (laughs) there's a heck of a lot of them. Heck of a lot of sexual, you know, pedophiles and those assaulting minors. I mean, it's all over the place. No, they're worried about killing the baby rather than preventing this from happening. This is the problem. The president needs to go the categorical route. Complete shutoff. By the way, I, I don't think we discussed this since since we talked last, but I have an article out from, what was it, yesterday, two days ago, where um, this, this tragic case, terrible case, terrible, 
in what's that place called? Um, northwest of Sacramento, I'm forgetting. Knight's End, Sutter County. So remember, we couldn't confirm that either. It looked like he was illegal. This guy, drunk driving. So typically, you know, you kill someone in a car with drunk driving. But in this case, the guy veered off a turn and plowed into a trailer park. Killed. There's a family of four. 10-year-old boy, 11-year-old girl, two parents. The parents and the 10-year-old boy were killed. The girl was seriously injured while sleeping. The guy tried to run away. The neighbors grabbed the guy, held him till police came. And you understand, they didn't, no one initially reported his status. Turns out, he was a previously deported illegal alien from Mexico. Okay? Trying to pull up the article here. I'll link to it in show notes. Whole number of things here. And again, nobody is making this case forcefully. You know, I forgot who it was. Was it Jason Jones? Someone was telling me recently, like, where is DEA? Where is CBP's investigative cartel unit? All these agencies of government telling the American people the severity of what is coming into the country. Why do you need like a New York Post or Daniel Horowitz on New Mexico and what's going on and I have to interview people? Why aren't they putting this out? I don't understand. But anyway, in this case, this guy, um, oh, I forget this trash, his name, Ismael Huazo Jardines. He was previously deported in 2011 came back at some later date. It turns out, I don't have the exact information, but it was reported by the local media eventually. He had other, he had a, not just an arrest, but a conviction for reckless driving at some earlier date and a couple of speeding tickets. So you have a previously deported guy who's not just arrested, but goes through a conviction process and it never comes up and he's never given over to ICE and he's released. Then he kills three people. So it's not a regular guy picked up for DUI. Kills three people. And he was let go on $300,000 bail. ICE had to send out their fugitive unit to surveil and get in. That's what we learned from this. He was let go. So this happened last Saturday night. He was let go Sunday morning. And ICE had to go get him. I wonder if it was my request, maybe. I don't know that they found out about it. I got to believe it's it, this was high profile enough in local news that the um, the office in charge of the of Northern California knew about it. But you can imagine the ones that are less, you know, just your typical guy arrested for drug trafficking, assault, it's not in the news, you wonder if they're even going to know about it. But not to veer too off topic here, not only is this an issue of, of, you know, Republicans refused. I mean, like, why is Jared Kushner doing this whole weird deal and, like, that's never going to pass, even if you vote on it, it's not the issue... 
I mean, there's no amnesty in it, so it's not terrible anymore, but it's just like weird. Like, we're not going to reduce immigration. We're not going to increase it. We'll make a little bit more merit-based. We'll fix some of the loopholes that don't need fixing without addressing the judicial loophole. Um, It's a lot to say about that, but like the one piece of legislation I always tell you, you don't need to fix the laws on keeping people out the border. Okay, that that's clear. What you actually do need legislation for is clamping down on sanctuary cities more. That is needed. Create a private right of action for citizens to sue localities and cut off all transportation funds. But yet not a single sanctuary bill has passed and Trump is not submitting one for them to pass. You, we need that messaging bill. That issue could single-handedly win the 2020 elections. It is so evident. But that's the story here. By the way, the family has set up a GoFundMe for Mariana, the um, kid. You know, living in a trailer park, I'm sure they're very poor. But somehow this is not sexy to the political elites and the pseudo-Bible thumpers of the pseudo-religious right that's really the irreligious left. Their sense of morality is messed up. Sometimes when you speak to the morality of an issue in a categorical way, whether it's speaking to the role of the courts and the other branches completely, or speaking to the immigration issue, Trump's lawful powers, the deleterious effects of everything going on, that we don't need a two or a four, we need a level 10 response. Sometimes that's the more politically auspicious way of doing things as well. And by the way, I just wanted to mention on this case, this is another example of jailbreak. All of the Koch brother, conservative, phony think tanks are all for this abolish bail. This is what abolish bail is. Meaning a lot of crimes, you know, if, if people hadn't been killed, they would have let him go without bail. In this case, he should have been without bail. I mean, a previously deported, returning illegal alien, drunk driver, killed three people, and you let him out on bail. So that's the other aspect of this. Independent from immigration, I'm saying this likely would have happened even if he would have been an American citizen. They like protecting illegals, but that's besides the point. This is criminal justice reform that almost all these phony conservatives support. Anyway, we're well over time here. A lot more I didn't discuss. I wanted to discuss the Virginia abortion case from that wacko Bush judge. Maybe we'll talk about that tomorrow that further proves our point about the judiciary that the time has come to categorically push back against the notion of their power. Let's just save that for tomorrow. Send me your comments, concerns, and questions at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at armconservative. God bless you all for listening. Thanks so much for your support. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.